Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Big picture question. What is the Gilded Age? The whole idea of the Gilded Age is that there's rot within, but the surface is spectacular. Richard White is a Stanford professor, and he literally wrote the book on the Gilded Age. It's a period in American history stretching from 1870 to 1900 or so. And it's a time when business was booming for a small group of people. It's the age where you get the word, the idle rich. People who have pet monkeys for whom they throw banquets and that the banquets are served on silver platters. The feasts in private homes, one of them I remember is it's in a stable. And so all of the waiters are going to be on horses. And the guy's favorite horse is the guest at the banquet who drinks out of a champagne bowl and gets drunk. So you have drunken rich people on top of a drunken horse riding around the stable in which there are liveried waiters serving this extravagant meal. That's the kind of stuff they do. This is Future Perfect on the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's a show less about rich people dining on horseback and more about trying to do good. I'm Dylan Matthews. Welcome to season two. Now, in the 21st century, we don't have many horse banquets, but we do have... A billion dollar super yacht that can turn into a submarine. A music extravaganza on a supposed private island where tickets cost up to $12,000. Yes, he did actually purchase the dead shark for a reported $8 million. Well, how about the Da Vinci book that uh, we had Bill Gates pay for $30 million? Terry, what do you think of that? Lots of people, including historians like Richard White, think we're living in a second Gilded Age. And it's not just because the horse banquets of yesteryear look a little like the fire festivals of today. In the first Gilded Age, some of the wealthiest people started giving away huge amounts of money. New this morning, Microsoft founder Bill Gates is personally donating $100 million. Of his and now, philanthropists are spending millions, even billions, again. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg making a massive $1.8 billion donation to his alma mater. Zuckerberg says his family is going to donate a billion dollars a year for the next three years through a new foundation called the Chan Zuckerberg. And sure, maybe that's better than spending money on super yachts, but it comes with its own set of problems. This season, we're going to look at donations in our modern Gilded Age. We'll tackle big gifts, big donors, and big questions, like what do huge injections of private money do to a democracy? 
But to make sense of the current Gilded Age, we're first going to dive into the history of the original Gilded Age. There had always been divisions of wealth in the United States, but there had never really been great fortunes until after the Civil War. I'm talking about fortunes which you could never spend in your lifetime and your children could never spend in their lifetime. And where is this wealth coming from? What kind of businesses and pursuits? The wealth is coming from a set of new industries which go around industrializing America. Um, The railroads provide a huge amount of wealth. They're the the biggest industry in the United States. Um, Standard Oil produces the Rockefeller fortune. Steel, which initially is sold mostly to the railroads, produces the Carnegie fortune. Let's be clear. Men like Carnegie, Rockefeller, Stanford, they couldn't have made their fortunes without government help. Like, Carnegie lobbied and bribed government officials to maintain tariffs on steel from Britain and other countries. That helped Carnegie sell a lot of steel and get rich. Stanford benefited even more directly. He got a huge chunk of government subsidies to build railroads, and then he ripped the government off. Also, there were basically no taxes put on any of this money. It was a very good time to be rich and a terrible time to be poor. Let's say you are a cigar maker in the tenements of New York. And what you find is two small room apartments in a tenement, which somebody has subleased from the owner, and they bring you in and the whole place just reeks of tobacco. There's tobacco leaves that are drying, they're hanging from the ceiling, the whole place is just full of tobacco dust. You live among this, you roll the tobacco, and your children learn to do the same thing. They eat among the tobacco, they play among the tobacco. The whole place is literally this small tobacco factory, except it's in a tenement building. And you do this to make a living, you have to work 10, 12, 14 hours day. This is, this is your life. And then there were the thousands and thousands of people leading miserable lives to make men like Andrew Carnegie richer, workers in his steel mills. The Carnegie industries are awful. And by awful, I mean they kill people. There's a, one study of the Carnegie South Works and um, one quarter of all new immigrant workers, these are going to be unskilled workers, probably the first industrial job they've ever had, One quarter of them, over 3,000 in total, are going to be killed or seriously injured. To repeat that, 3,000 people in about a nine-year window. Imagine killing or maiming 3,000 of your workers. My producer, Bird, actually found a detailed description of the mills. It's by this novelist and poet named Hamlin Garland. He went to visit the Carnegie Steel Mills in 1893 in Homestead, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. A year before he visited, Homestead had experienced one of the bloodiest strikes in American history. 35 people died. Hearing Garland's account, it's not hard to understand why workers were striking. Everywhere, the yellow mud of the street lay kneaded into a sticky mass, through which groups of pale, lean men slouched in faded garments, grimy with the soot and grease of the mills. He starts off describing this squalid town, And then he goes to the steel mill itself, and he looks at the pits there. I watched the men as they stirred the deeps beneath. I dared not move for fear of flying metal, the swift swing of a crane, or the sudden lurch of a great carrier. The men worked with a sort of desperate attention and alertness. That looks like hard work, I said to one of them. Hard? I guess it's hard. I I lost 40 pounds the first three months I came into this business. It sweats the life out of a man. 
The sweat drips through my sleeves and runs down my legs and fills my shoes. But that isn't the worst of it, said my guide. It's a dog's life. Those men work 12 hours and sleep and eat 10 more. Man doesn't have much time for anything else. Can't see your friends or do anything but work. The converting mill was the most gorgeous and dangerous of all. They call this the death trap. A fountain of sparks arose. The pot began to burn with a whiter flame. It's nearly ready to pour! The men were shoveling away slag in the rain of falling sparks. They worked with desperate haste. Down came the vessel until out of it streamed the smooth flow of terribly beautiful molten metal. As it ran nearly empty and the ladle swung away, the dropping slag fell to the group, exploding and leaping viscously. Sometimes a chain breaks and the iron explodes. Sometimes the slag falls on the workmen. Of course, if everything is working all smooth and a man watches out, all right. But after they've been on duty for 12 hours without sleep, running like hell, that's a different story. What do those men get who are shoveling slag out there? 14 cents an hour. To work is literally to die in many of these mills. Your chances of escaping serious injury are slim. And even if you survive, it exhausts you. You rarely see people over 50 working in these mills because it simply so brutalizes you, so taxes your strength that you cannot go on. And then when you're so exhausted you can't do it anymore, what happens to you? At that point, you are probably, the good thing is you're probably going to die soon. So amidst all of this, what is it that drives people like Carnegie to start doing massive philanthropy after they've amassed these gigantic fortunes by exploiting workers like that? Well, for Carnegie, the two are intimately connected. I mean, first of all, he wants to justify the social order that has given him great wealth and which he recognizes is not necessarily paying off for his workers or many other people in America. And so what he says is that, you know, these fortunes would be obscene if I was going to keep them. But what I'm going to do with my fortune is to give it away for the, what he calls the progress of the race. Carnegie actually pulled all of his ideas together in this essay he called The Gospel of Wealth. He actually recorded himself reading part of it years later when he was in his 70s. I quote from the gospel published 25 years ago. This then is spoiled to be the duty of the man of wealth. Basically, he starts off saying, yes, we have a lot of inequality in the modern world. But actually, that's a good thing, because I know how to spend your money better than you do. He goes on, and I really want you to hear what he said. We have a reenactment for you, because it's hard to understand the original tape. The man of wealth thus becoming the mere agent and trustee for his poorer brethren, bringing to their service his superior wisdom, experience, and ability to administer, doing for them better than they could do for themselves. So what Carnegie's saying there is, he has superior wisdom. He should be spending money, not you. But he's going to spend the money on your behalf so you can become wise like he is. It's all part of a myth he created. Andrew Carnegie, the self-made man. Andrew Carnegie rose in the world 
because he was very able, there's no denying that, and because he also made connections. Those connections gave him a leg up, and they let him make insider deals and profit from tariffs. He then invents a version of himself which eliminates all the connections that he'd had with the rich, with people who ran the Pennsylvania Railroad, with all the insider deals that he had, with his ability to um, get politicians to have high tariffs. And he imagines himself as somebody who just pulled himself up by the bootstraps. And all he needed to pull himself up by the bootstraps, he thought, was an opportunity. Men possessed of this peculiar talent for affairs, under free play of economic forces, must, of necessity, soon be in receipt of more revenue than can be judiciously expended on themselves. Translation. Men like me, with a talent for business, basically just can't help but make money. But Carnegie was also clear that he thought every person could nurture a talent for business in themselves. This is why he goes to libraries. He will give the opportunity to young men like himself to improve themselves and to rise up in the world. He builds a lot of libraries for American workers to improve themselves. Like, a lot, a lot. 1,689 across the country. My neighborhood library in Mount Pleasant, D.C., is actually one of them. And the odds are good that your town has at least one, too. The problem with the library is, yeah, there's a library, but meanwhile, the workers are working a 12-hour day. If you add in the hours they're going to sleep and the hours they're going to eat and the hours they're going to go back and forth from home, that takes another 10 hours. That's 22 hours. So these guys have two hours left. So they said, by the time we are done working and we're exhausted, we don't read. (laughs) That's not what we are going to do. If you want people to read, if you want to educate people, don't work them 12 hours a day and pay them more money. Carnegie's story highlights some of the key things we can learn from Gilded Age philanthropy. One, the way that philanthropists were making their money was sometimes dubious, sometimes because of corruption and helpful government subsidies, and sometimes because of terrible labor conditions. And two, yes, they were giving the money away, but these philanthropists got to spend it according to their own eccentric whims, which is how Carnegie's workers got beautiful libraries that they couldn't use. So you could imagine a defender of the Stanfords or or Carnegie looking at this and saying, yes, it's self-aggrandizing. Yes, they're making the decisions. But isn't it better that they do this rather than only throwing lavish balls with horses? Isn't it better that they at least give something back even if they're deciding how that happens? What's the problem with that view? Well, the problem with that view is if you're going to set the bar low enough that here's what we do. Either we we get on our horses and ride around the stable, or we get to control what we do with our fortune. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much, I go with the Carnegie's and the Stanford's, but that's not the whole realm of choices. The realm of choices are, first of all, why should you get to decide the money and why should you have all this money anyway? Why weren't you taxed heavily to make sure that a lot of this money would be devoted to public purposes, not decided by you, but, but decided by by the public yourself. We live in a democracy, after all. 
Why aren't you forced to, in fact, pay workers higher wages that they get more of a decision of what they do? Why aren't there greater controls over public laws that will stop you from using public benefits to line your own pockets? Because after all, the Stanford's made their money from public subsidies to railroads. Carnegie made his money largely because the state gave a tariff that allowed him to um, keep out English steel that otherwise would have competed with him. And he he says himself that I owe my fortune to the tariff. So there's public policies that gave you this fortune. Why aren't there public policies which, in fact, take away part of that fortune and devote it to public purposes? Now, workers with shoes full of sweat laboring for 12 hours a day next to libraries they don't have time or energy to use, and kids breathing tobacco dust in rundown tenement cigar factories. All of that probably sounds very, very different from the world we live in today. But after the break, Richard White really makes the case that we're living in a second Gilded Age. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent... You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome back. Richard White, our Gilded Age historian, is pretty clear. 
he thinks we're living in a second Gilded Age. And the reason I say so is because you could tick off a series of factors, but the major one is going to be the rise in inequality. The second one is going to be a tax system which largely rewards the wealthy and punishes everybody else. And that we have a class of the very, very rich who have decided that their view of what the future should be should be the ruling future for everybody. All of those remind me very much of the Gilded Age. So let's break that down a bit. The way to understand the modern Gilded Age is that in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, there actually was declining inequality that the government taxed in a way that restored equality between social classes in the United States. We can call it sort of the interlude. It's in between the old Gilded Age and the new Gilded Age. What happens in the 1970s, 1980s is those tax policies reverse. Ronald Reagan signed the largest tax cut in history. Social policies reverse. Republicans uh, worked with Bill Clinton to get welfare reform changed. Then we start getting rising inequality in ways that reminds us of the inequality of the late 19th century. Financial services deregulation. What we have is a set of public policies which reward the very rich. Attacks on unions and wage regulations. That's one of the things that characterizes both the old Gilded Age and the new Gilded Age. And we have politicians who are pretty much abdicating any of their roles in the economy except aiding the rich and aiding in growth. They don't care about the distribution of wealth. They care much more about the generation of wealth. Both ages have been known as corrupt. And since he was elected, the Saudis have spent lavishly at Trump properties. Both ages have been known for their extravagance. Oracle founder Larry Ellison is actually buying a Hawaiian island. Both ages have been known because of rising nativism. America first, from now on, America first. But what you find is the same basic set of political economic conditions are generating very similar phenomena. What, when looking at the current class of wealthy, do you think we can learn from the experience of Carnegie and Stanford? What mistakes did they make or approaches did they take that can inform how we think about wealthy people giving money away now? If you are getting your money by creating real social wrongs and by creating real social suffering and by stirring up social strife, all of the gifts you make in the future are not going to make up for that. The other lesson from this is you're not that smart. You know, making money doesn't mean that you can go into and solve other kinds of social problems. You really are not among the socially fit. And this is not really about the survival of the fittest. So um, get over yourself. Very often, if you're going to give money away, if you're going to use money, you should find people who know more about it than you and you should seek control of it. More than that, there should be a democratic input in it. And I think that's the second thing that should come into this is that there is a way way in which any time that there is great power vested in private entities, I, for one, am deeply distrustful. And I think my distrust is an American distrust. It's a distrust that goes back to the beginning of the Republic. The power corrupts, and um, private power corrupts just as much as public power. Individual donors and foundations, they're not necessarily bad, but they're also not necessarily good either. We have to evaluate them and their role in our democracy very carefully. 
And one of the things I should say is I've benefited from these foundations. I've gotten money from them, but I've gotten money from them that probably the people who originated those foundations, they'd never given it to the likes of me. But that doesn't change my objection to the foundations, that the foundations are still a kind of privatization of what should be public purposes. Definitely. Well, and as Bird probably mentioned, this podcast is financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've, they've, uh, pretty much my wife says that my tombstone should be he bit the hand that fed but there's, there's a certain fairness in that there are worse epitaphs um. <laughs> it's easy a hundred years later to scrutinize big donors like Carnegie and Stanford and yes even Rockefeller it's easy to call out their donations as a fig leaf that covered up abusive workers and kept their fortunes untaxed But now we're in a second Gilded Age, and a new generation of philanthropists is pouring money into our courts, our workplaces, and our technology. And that money is shaping how our society works. So this season on Future Perfect, we're going to be taking a big look at the modern age of American mega-philanthropy, from the Ford Foundation in the 1960s to Mark Zuckerberg today. And we'll be asking three big questions. Who exactly is giving all this money? Where is all the money they give coming from? And is all this giving democratic? Are these legitimate instruments for influencing thought in a democratic society? Yeah, that's a very good question. Next week, the president of a foundation that has fundamentally changed our court system. The Olin Foundation really had a tremendous impact on the way judges decide cases in this country and changing the kind of judges that are on the benches in America. Philanthropic money is changing the world around us. We're going to ask if that's something we want. Future Perfect is produced and co-reported by Bird Pinkerton. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger, and we're engineered and scored by Jared Paul. Our music is by Scott Joplin, Chris Zabriskie, MJ O'Connell, Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and APM. Our voice actors were Bird, Luke Vanderplug, Noam Hassenfeld, and Jeffrey Geld. Special thanks to Ben Soskis, Emma Saunders-Hastings, and Afim Shapiro. 